Welcome back to Dylan Through the Decades, our mini-series that explores the life and music of the one and only Bob Dylan. In our last episode, we discussed Dylan's bizarre career self-sabotage, his appearance in a gunslinging western film, a reunion with the band, the concert spectacle of the Rolling Thunder Review, and his unexpected turn to end times evangelical Christianity. Needless to say, the 1970s was a wild decade for Bob, and it left him exhausted by the end of it. He would eventually find some peace, at least for a while, in the arms of the church. Well, it may be the devil, or it may be the Lord, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. His 1979 album, Slow Train Coming, announced to the world that he had finally found his faith. And he was gonna tell you about it. On stage, as a matter of fact. During the tour to support Slow Train Coming, Bob ignored his early work and instead focused on his gospel lessons, going so far as to preach from the stage about the fire and brimstone his audience was destined for if they didn't get right with God, his God. There's only two kinds of people, like the preacher says. Only two kinds of people. No matter how much money you got, there's only two kinds of people. There's saved people and there's lost people. This traveling church service was only the start of a three-year journey through Bob's newfound faith. Which is what we will open our discussion here with today. Bob kicked off the 1980s with an album called Saved, which featured an image of God's own hand touching his on its cover, which was about as subtle as the lyrics found on the record itself. He followed that up just a year later with A Shot of Love, which was another dose of praise music, although now with a later touch. But that would fail to win back the fans he drove away with his turn to born-again Christianity. During the tour to support A Shot of Love, he skipped the tedious Bible lectures and returned to fan favorites to the set list. But it wouldn't matter. The so-called slow train had run out of steam, as his low ticket sales was now matching his low album sales. He took much of 1982 off for some much-needed career recalibration. He surfaced only once alongside Joan Baez to protest nuclear weapons and also to salute one of his favorite songwriters, although not someone you would probably expect. In 1983, Bob returned with Infidels. An album full of religious themes and imagery. Only now the preaching and praise was replaced with reactionary political rants. Critics seemed to like it, but sales did not much improve. 1985 brought much of the pop music world together for a series of bombastic charity events, and Bob found himself at the center of three of the biggest. It can only be one man, the transcendent Bob Dylan! Bob got a solo verse in We Are the World, he headlined the American Live Aid concert, and his off-the-cuff remarks at that event actually led to the creation of Farm Aid, an annual benefit concert that still goes on today. Bob's inclusion in these events was no doubt a result of the work he did in the 1960s. 
but these high-profile appearances did very little in garnering attention for the work he was doing in the 1980s. Many of Bob's middle-aged contemporaries enjoyed big revivals in the late 80s, but Bob failed to capture or even warrant one with each of his next three albums. They sat unsold in record stores, and Bob had to lean heavily on Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, as well as the Grateful Dead, to sell any amount of tickets for his live shows. Much like the one before, Bob appeared set to close out the decade on the sour note of a sad decline. But in 1988, he got by with a little help from his friends. Bob joined with some of his superstar buddies to form the Traveling Wilburys, which would serve as a defibrillator for his now flatlining career. Two smash singles off a stellar album put Bob back on top of the charts and restored his faltering confidence. Since the Wilburys did not do concerts, Bob launched his so-called never-ending tour, which marked a new philosophy on live performances. He would now focus on playing more frequently for dedicated fans in mid-level venues. He then shook off the dust and got back into the recording studio. Most of the time It's well understood Most of the time I wouldn't change it if I could Which resulted in an album that proved his creative fire was still burning. The 1980s would either be very good or very bad for most legacy acts, but Bob would actually get a little of both. So join us as we look at Bob in his 40s. Did he age gracefully or did he have a midlife crisis? Let's find out. Now pour yourself a glass of Heaven's Door whiskey as over the next hour and change, my friend Chris and I will chronicle his music and stories from that era. This is Dylan Through the Decades Part 3, Bob Dylan in the 1980s. where we left off. So in 1978-79, Bob converts to evangelical Christianity to the point where he is preaching from the stage during concerts. He's only doing songs that have religious messages in them, skipping all the hits that the fans want to hear. And he seems to have really bought into this lifestyle that nobody really saw coming for him. But in 79, he backed it up with a pretty good record. We both like Slow Train Coming. Absolutely. One of the chapters in Chronicles, Bob's book, deals with Oh Mercy, which is his last album of the 80s. And how he sets up the chapter about Oh Mercy is that he says that in the late 80s, he was in a personal low point, career low point. He was getting close to hitting rock bottom. And he was developing performance anxiety, 
He didn't know where his career was going. And he was apparently at the point where he was contemplating retirement. So in the last two episodes, we were very positive, very celebratory of a lot of the music here. I think we're going to talk about some stuff that uh, doesn't quite measure up to par um, with what he put out in the 60s and 70s. In fact, I think a lot of Dylan fans would say he produced very little of value through the whole decade of the 1980s. And I don't know if you remember this, but the first time you were on the podcast, when we did the Heaven's Door sampling, you said, quote, there was probably a 15-year period where Dylan put out absolute garbage. And I have to think you had the 80s in mind when you said that. Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> now that we've listened to his discography in the 80s, do you still feel the same way? No, there, there's some diamonds in the rough. Like, there's definitely uh, his whole Christian period I've come around, and we'll talk about those, I've come around to quite a bit. Um, oh, Mercy's good. And even some of his worst albums I found song here or there that I didn't hate. Pleasantly surprised yeah. on, on, a, on a couple of moments? Okay, well, let's, uh, let's get started. Let's dive into the first one here. So the second album in his crazy Christian period is called Saved, released June of 1980. The lead-off single is the track Solid Rock, which I'll tell you right off, I think that is great. It's a great song. And I won't let go, I can't let go. Won't let go and I can't let go. Won't let go and I can't let go no more. And appropriately titled, it is very much a solid rock song. But it did not chart. I'm not going to say this every single time he released a single and did not chart. Suffice to say, through the 80s, none of his singles were hits. <laughs> so uh, I think the title track on Saved is like a very nicely done gospel track. In fact, I think there's a lot of like good gospel music on, on Saved. There is some here that I don't like. Well, what do you think about Saved? I actually liked it. I, I really I enjoyed pressing on quite a bit. Satisfied Mind, I enjoyed Dylan's always kind of been weird, I think, lyrically about women. Mm. And I think it he goes like full retrograde on Covenant Woman. It's almost, it's cringy. But overall, I enjoy the album. The two tracks on here that I really don't like are What Can I Do For You and Are You Ready? And you chose me to be among the few. What can I do for you? I guess it's like why worship music doesn't really do it for me. It's very... Uh, would, would the term simp be appropriate here? <laughs> like, like simps for Christ? Right, yes. <laughs> Which in the context of church, you know, like in Christianity, Catholicism for us, evangelical Christianity for Bob, the term sheep is not an insult in the context of church. But in the context of music I want to listen to during my day, yeah, that vibe or whatever is the last thing I want to hear. Yeah, I, mean, I agree. I think that just more fundamentally about art, true art is content to just describe. It doesn't have to explain. And it doesn't have to make grandiose, you know, gestures towards, you know, like some sort of an overarching you know, explanation for the universe and things. And I think definitely at, its, at, at that album's worst and, and at, at Christian or praise music's worst, <laughs> yeah. that's exactly what it is. They go in there with a thesis and they write the thing out and that's right. what they come out with. And he's definitely doing that on this album. 
I felt he was pretty good at steering away from that in um, Slow Train Coming. Yeah. But it's really at the surface here. You know, it, it falls into the trappings of worship music as a whole. The album cover did not help. <laughs> uh, so this record didn't sell, and a big reason this record didn't sell has to be, at least in part, due to the original cover of the album, which is God's hand with the finger extended, touching the finger of Bob's, yeah. uh, amongst a sea of hands that are not reaching God's. And you know it's Bob's hand because his name is centered on the wrist of it. Yeah. <laughs> Which, still, still a better cover than uh, Self-Portrait, though. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> <laughs> you know what, though? I, I, don't, I don't hate the cover. I mean, it's truth in advertising, I guess, to a fault, you know? If you're not interested in worship music, you should not be picking up an album with a cover like that. I mean, especially the time period. I, there, there was just, I'm sure, a feeling that he had sort of turned his back on, which I guess he had done that in the 70s as well. Mm-hmm. He, he continually, continuously kind of turned his back on what people expected him to do. So there was a second cover for Saved because Saved sold so poorly. Saved sold worse than every other album except for his debut. Yeah. And I'm going to say that a couple of times throughout the 80s. <laughs> he set new lows a number of times in the 80s. But Saved sold so alarmingly bad that they made a new cover for it. And some copies have this cover where it's not the hand of God. It's just a picture of Bob playing harmonica on stage. Yeah. Or, you know. As if that would help sales. I mean, at the end of the day, <laughs> Why the, not the, it? the album is still... <laughs> exactly, yeah. The content, what he was doing on tours, everything's going to you know push people away from buying the album. So. Yeah. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. So he learned his lesson a little bit for the third album in the Christian trilogy, which is A Shot of Love, released August 1981. That cover, although not as on the nose as Saved, that cover sucks. It's just the words Shot of Love. I kind of like it. You like it? Okay. It's got kind of a pop art look to it. You know, it looks like almost a comic book kind of... It does look like a comic book. I can't think of the artist who does those comic book type paintings, but yeah. The first single from Shout of Love was the title track. Guess what? It did not chart. And this album sold even worse 
than Saved. But you don't dislike this album, right? I like this album. Yeah, okay. Do you like it more or less than Saved? Um, much more. I think I might actually Ooh. like it better than Slow Train Coming. Oh, okay. All right. By all means, what do you think of it? I mean, first of all, I think, and we, we talked a little about this earlier, I, I think his vocals on Shot of Love are the best sort of mature Dylan mm. vocals that you get. And I think they're clear. Like, it still I mean, it definitely sounds like Dylan. <laughs> but it's, he's in control. It's clear yeah. when, he, when he's singing. It's, I, I really think his vocals are the cleanest on Shot of Love, just about any album he's, he's done. How about the songwriting? Certainly better than, say, Every Grain of Sand. Yep. Is, is, I, I came away, that's one of my, I think, my favorite Dylan songs now. I gaze into the doorway of temptation's angry flame And every time I pass that way, I always hear my name Then onward in my journey, I come to understand That every hair is numbered like every grain of sand Do you think the opening of that one sounds a little bit like Everybody Hurts by R.E.M.? Oh man, I would, I, I would not put that. I'd have to listen to him. I, I would have to listen to Everybody Hurts more recently than I think I have. Oh, okay, okay. But that's uh, interesting. Touring in Austin a lot at that time. That's that's. I mean, that's. Everybody hurts is the early '90s R.E.M. So a good ten years yeah, before, yeah. but they might have been around. I like uh, the groom still waiting at the altar. It's a great song, and you're talking about lyrically him becoming stronger again. Yeah, it's him returning to actually using some metaphors in his writing. Mm-hmm. So, and ostensibly that song is about Christ, right? Christ is the groom waiting at the altar for. The bride, which is the church, and the whole. It, but it's, uh, yeah, no, it's a good, it's a good song. I really like mo. I like most of the the tracks on there. Heart of Mine, I'd say, is an A plus for me. Okay. Um, the title track's good. Property of Jesus, I think I said, was the <laughs> the, the Christian equivalent of like a tramp stamp. Like, yeah. It's Property of Jesus. <laughs> Um, but I liked it. I still it's got yeah. a good sound. Yeah. I really like the song. It's funny. The one song on the album I really don't like is Lenny Bruce. Oh. Lenny Bruce is dead. But he didn't come in any crime. He just had the insight to rip off the lid before. And it's like the not it's like probably the only non-Christian song on the album. Yeah. And I love Lenny Bruce. Yeah. And I love Bob Dylan. And you also like his song for Woody Guthrie, which is what the Lenny yeah. Bruce song reminded me of. But that's a much better written song. I don't know much about him. Did he like die that year? Or did he die in the seventies? Oh no, he would have died, I think, in the uh, I wanna say sixties. Oh, okay, so this wasn't yeah, this wasn't. But he had become 
over the course yes. of the seventies, he was the kind of the progenitor of modern stand-up. I mean, mm. George Carlin. Um, These are all all, all of those evangelical Christians all flocked. Yes, they're big fans of guys like Lenny Bruce and George Carlin. <laughs> Which is why it's bizarre. It's even on the album. That's what I'm the saying. whole yeah. thing is, and he's I, and I think he's doing a concert again too. Yeah. Um, and, I, and, I, and I'm interested to see at some point if if how he performs it now. It, mm. It's just a bizarre song. And lyrically really weak. Yeah, it just doesn't do it for you. He said he though. wrote it in five minutes. Oh, okay. I heard him say, like, they asked him, like, what inspired you? And he's like, I wrote it in five minutes. I don't know. Yeah. So, the tour for Shot of Love, at least the back end of it, is pretty much uh, when we st- start to see Bob moving away from this. And during the tour, he started to bring back, I can't believe I'm saying this, but secular music. Yeah. His, his old hits that fans wanted. Because the other thing was... It wasn't just that the albums weren't selling; dude wasn't selling tickets either. Right. You know, so he was trying to like uh, make the show a little more appealing for fans. This was also like the kind of thing he really did not like doing. Yeah. And on top of that, that he was losing interest in religion. At the end of the tour, he was uh, felt very aimless, very uncertain, and decided to take an extended break at the end of 1981, and didn't do much of anything until 1983. So before we get to the next album, we're going to take a little sidestep here to the one live appearance he made in 1982, just because I find this story very funny. (laughs) So we're going to unpack this a little bit. On June 6th, 1982, he played at a Peace Sunday concert, which was a benefit concert to promote nuclear disarmament, you know, which was all the rage in the late 70s and early 80s. Don't see that too much nowadays. It's a lot of no nukes stuff. So Bob shows up and he plays as a special guest of who else? Joan Baez. And he only played three songs with her. They started with With God on Our Side, appropriate. And they concluded with Blown in the Wind, also I'd say pretty appropriate. Smack dab in the middle, they sing Jimmy Buffett's How a Pirate Looks at Fordia. Mother, mother ocean, I have heard you call, wanted to sail upon your waters since I was three feet tall, you've seen it all. When I first heard this story, I thought this was some sort of like real mean-spirited dig at the event itself. Like Bob was making fun of everything that was going on. I've done a little reading about it. I don't think that was the case. I think that was an incorrect reading about it. But it feels wildly inappropriate (laughs) to play a song like that at a a, a benefit concert. And I'm going to read you a quote from Joan Baez. She was interviewed by Rolling Stone magazine in April 1983, so about a year later, and she was asked about it. And she said, quote, He always wants to do a song I've never heard before. This time he read it off his arm and he couldn't see. I begged him to do something we knew, but he wanted to do this Jimmy Buffett tune, A Pirate Looks at 40. He scribbled it all over his wrist and then forgot to take his jacket off. It's always interesting when Bob appears. (laughs) I mean, the lyrics, when you really look at them and you read through them and you think about what Dylan's going through in, in that year, coming off the religion thing, losing that... You know, I'm sure he had been drunk for over two weeks. Yes. <laughs> uh, we do know that he goes for younger women. Oh, um, yeah. I mean, seriously, I, I can see where he maybe just, he felt like this is the song to sing right now. He just called to him. To be fair, one of Buffett's most lyrically 
accomplished songs, I think. I, I love that song. Absolutely. Absolutely it is. And we're going to get to uh, what Bob and Jimmy think of each other in just a moment here. I'm going to wrap this up about uh, Bob and Joan, because this was actually one of the last times they ever shared the stage together. She showed up at a couple of his concerts in Europe the year later, but he didn't know she was coming or he didn't want her there and it was like really awkward and she would quit the tour halfway through. So this might have been the last time where they were both willingly on stage together and enjoying themselves. So that's sort of an interesting end to a very famous relationship. She's just because she's not a covenant woman, Joe. <laughs> I think that's correct, yeah. I think she would agree. So in 2020, Rolling Stone magazine asked Jimmy about it. And Jimmy Buffett said, was I thrilled about it? Yeah, he likes that song. What can I say? And going back to what you were getting at is that in May of 2009, Bob was asked who his favorite songwriters were. And the first name out of his mouth was Buffett. He also mentioned Gordon Lightfoot and John Prine and some others. But when he was asked about his favorite Jimmy Buffett songs, he mentioned Death of an Unpopular Poet, and he went to Paris. You know, I know people have this idea that Jimmy Buffett is like this ultimate airhead boomer type. (laughs) You know? Yes. (laughs) Right, with the Margaritaville and all that. But, like, before he had that, he was a credible and pretty well-respected songwriter. And I think Bob probably has those records and those songs in a special place in his heart. So that leads me to think, you know, as we are two guys who do a little mini-series here about songwriters, is our next mini-series going to be Buffett through the decades? (laughs) (laughs) I would do it. My thing is, during the the pandemic, Buffett started doing weekly YouTube videos of, like, real, like, B-sides and, like, deeper cuts from his... Yeah. I had never really listened to a lot of Buffett other than... Songs you know by heart. Yes. (laughs) But I was surprised by how solidly written some of his songs really are. And Bob agrees. All right, let's uh, get back on the main path here and move to October 1983 when Bob puts out my favorite album of his in the 80s, one of my favorite albums from him, period, Infidels. Mark Knopfler returns to play guitar on this one. He also played on Slow Train Coming. And this definitely marks the end of the Christian era, although there are definitely some religious themes on this yeah. record. Some people have said this is sort of like, not his return to Judaism, but like maybe an exploration of the religion he was raised with. I think he's going Rasta. Oh. Isn't I and I? I and I is a Rastafarian th- concept, isn't oh, it? Oh, okay. Well, I mean. Pretty sure it is. I mean, Joker Man definitely has reggae influence on yeah. it. You know? Okay. So, holy crap. We got re- religious vibes all over the place here because <laughs> the lyrics of joker man are very biblical and then you've got the song neighborhood bully which everybody seems to agree that this is about israel yeah. well i mean and just to be clear man of peace is clearly about the antichrist i mean that oh, is, right, that is right. a very obvious yes uh, that one's christian really on the theme there yeah so again the religious themes are are alive and well but this isn't the same gospel music as the stuff we heard before so my favorite track from the record is not a religious one but it is incredibly political Union Sundown which was the lead off single it hit number 55 on Billboard which I think was his highest charting single in the 80s
of this song are very reactionary. And it seems to me that, like, he went to the recording studio just very jaded, and he was just like, okay, you don't want my Christian stuff, you want me to write songs about America, like, blowing in the wind, you want me to write protest music, fine, here's your protest song, America sucks, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> He's always 30 years ahead of the yeah. <laughs> This is a pretty angry song. Democracy don't rule the world, you better get that through your head. This world is ruled by violence, but I guess that's better left unsaid. I like that. I, mean, I don't think yeah. it's wrong. I don't like that song at all. Okay, yeah. Going back to what I was talking about, like, what good art is, that's a song that explains to you how the world is. <laughs> okay. That's not describing. Okay. Like, he could do a song about that and be more just describing the reality. But no, he likes the song. He's like, he's really, he's laying it down for you. He's explaining to you, like, this is how the world is, right? You know, yeah. It's, it's not great. Oh, you know what? I think that's a very good point. It's very fair. Everybody describes the song as like a diatribe, where he's just like, yeah, nothing's made in America. Everything's outsourced. Unions, you know, don't do what they used to. I would like to get us, like, you know how they do that thing where they'll pull the, the music off a song and just do the lyrics? They separate out, like, from the masters? Oh, yeah. I would like to just hear Dylan singing this with no... <laughs> music behind it at all and he would just sound like a crazy person he would like, sound like talk radio he would yeah you're right well a crazy person <laughs> yeah yeah exactly right. <laughs> when nothing you got is you that's me still make nothing here no more you know capitalism is nothing law it said it don't count less itself when it costs too much to build it at home, you just build it cheaper someplace else. You're listening to the EIB Network. And I'll say that I don't like this song specifically just because of the lyrics. I do like some of the lyrics, but mostly I like this song is because it's got a fucking kick-ass guitar rift. I think it's Mark Knopfler on guitar. And you set the lyrics aside, you make the lyrics about whatever. I still think it's a good rock song. But it is sort of funny. It, it does seem that Bob woke up on the wrong side of the bed that morning. And that came out in 83, right? Yep. I'd be very interested in knowing if he was reading Mosquito Coast. Because that came out in 81. Okay. It's a deep, you can... I was going to say, I don't get that reference, but hopefully our listeners yeah, do. Put that <laughs> no, it's, uh, well, yeah. Okay. Any other thoughts on, on Infidels? Honestly, I was less impressed with this album than Shot of Love. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Because Infidels was one you mentioned last time that you were looking forward to. So this is one that, you know, maybe the other ones go up in, in your book after revisiting them. This one takes a mild step down. Yeah, and I think, honestly, the best songs on the album still have a religious... Oh, he's the most inspired on this album when he's still singing things that are broadly religious. Not like, necessarily. like Joker Man? Joker Man, I and I, Man yeah. of Peace, License to Kill. He should have played that at that uh, Peace Sunday. <laughs> that's a. He might not have had that one written, but that's yeah. a good one, yeah. But it feels like critics really were, I think, nicer to this. I think they were just kind of like, oh, thank God he's not a Christian anymore. Right. You remember when New Morning had the review that went, we got Bob Dylan back. And maybe it was over-celebratory yes. of a, a pretty good album, but, you know, not some world beater. Is Infidels getting the same thing because they were just so sick and tired of the, the Christian thing? Yeah, I think Shot of Love too harshly judged, and then Infidels too, hard, too oh, you know, they were too overjoyed. Just we got Bob back. Absolutely. Think you're on to something. Okay, after that uh, angry thesis he put out, he spent the next couple of years doing some charity work. But he wasn't the only one. seems that, like, every superstar in the 80s had to do some grandiose charity work. The two big ones in America were We Are the World, 
and Live Aid, and after that, Farm Aid. And Bob has a critical point in all three. <laughs> yeah. So let's take these one at a time. We Are the World, that's the first one. We Are the World's big charity single, all the pop and rock stars get together. If, if you don't know this song, you, you've truly been living under a rock. You've definitely heard it. I'll play a quick clip of Bob's verse. <laughs> uh, so take a listen to this. Here's Bob Dylan on We Are the World. There's a choice for me. Rehearsal footage of Bob exists <laughs> of this, and he's with Quincy Jones and Lionel Richie, and he practices singing it a couple of different ways, and he seems to really put some care into how he sings it. He wants to get it right. He seems very insecure, and Quincy Jones is assuring him it's very good, and he seems relieved. But a lot of people will tell you his voice and his verse does not sound good at all. It definitely sticks out like a sore thumb, but I don't think it's bad. I mean, I think that's the only appeal of that song, is that you get to play Spot the Singer, you know, by identifying their voice. And Bob's an easy one. <laughs> but he's one of the only people that gets a standalone verse, where he's not really sharing the mic with somebody else. Uh, obviously because of, well, his reputation, his it's legacy. He's Bob Dylan. Right, exactly. And I know I sent you the, uh, the gif of the camera that's isolated on I him. And he just looks, like, very confused. He's not really singing along the rest of them. This is a pretty famous gif. What do you think it was like for him in that studio, surrounded by all these celebrities who were actually having hits, <laughs> and he's not, like, an extroverted guy to begin with? Yeah. You know? What do you, what do you think that day was like for him? He, so he rarely looks comfortable in public. That's true. <laughs> but he's not even singing. Right. <laughs> he just looks kind of like confused, mouthing the words maybe mm -hmm. a little bit. It's funny. Yeah. Learning so much about him, it, it is very funny to me to, to see him in that video because I can't imagine he enjoyed it at all. It's up there with the video I sent you of the Gordon Lightfoot uh, uh, award ceremony in Canada, which I think, yeah. that, I think it's the 80s. Yeah. You could put that up for... <laughs> That's right. He's weird on that. I saw the footage of where he gets uh, the Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award with Jack Nicholson. He's freaking weird and uncomfortable on stage there, I too. I didn't see that. Why did Nicholson give him the Why would Nicholson give him a, a, the Grammy? Well, uh, Nicholson also introduced him at Live Aid. So I think there's a good chance they're friends. Either that or they're both just A-list celebrities. That could be it. You know, that's all that yeah, is. That could be it. So just sort of a funny anecdote from the We Are the World recording sessions. So you know jazz pop singer Al Giroux. I'm broadly familiar with Okay, yeah, yeah, he's a, you know... The... I know how to pronounce his name. Other than that. Better than me there. Um, the Yacht Rock guys love him. Well, there's a funny anecdote where he at one point approaches Bob during the downtime and says, quote, Bobby, in my own stupid way, I just want to tell you I love you. Bob stares at him just with a blank expression and then turns and walks away without a word. That leaving Giroux sobbing. That is one of the best things that... So I read that in the outline that you yeah. sent me. It's one of the best thing, anecdotes I've ever heard about anyone. Or certainly Bob Dylan, though. Right. Because it's so on brand with his... I mean, knowing what we know about him and how he doesn't like the idea of being pro, like a projection. Like, he doesn't like the idea that he's representing anything other than just his own expression of what he's doing. Yeah. So for somebody who he does not know, presumably, right. to come and be like, I love you. 
Yeah. He was probably just like, you're as bad as those fuckers who were storming my barn in Woodstock. Right. You know? That's probably what he's thinking. So it's so on brand, and I love it. That's a great story. Yeah, I think so, too. Because it is sort of like, hey, that's not appropriate to say, man. You don't know him. Nothing against Al Drew, but, like, you don't know you don't know the guy. Yeah. You don't love him. Yeah. Uh, and for what it's worth, Kim Carnes, who was also at that recording session, said she had a better experience. She said, quote, he was easy to talk to. Now, I think we both know the difference there is that Kim Carnes was a good-looking woman in 1985, and Al Drew was not a good-looking woman in 1985. Is, is, is Carnes with a K? It is with a C. <laughs> <laughs> so... Moving on to the next big charity event, that was Live Aid, held on July 1985. There were the dual concerts in England and in Philly. Bob headlined the American concert in Philly at JFK Stadium. He was backed up by Keith Richards and Ronnie Wood, both of whom only did it to upstage Mick Jagger, who decided to perform with Tina Turner instead of the Rolling Stones as a group. And I think it blew up in their face because Ronnie and Keith looked like shit and also played <laughs> like shit. <laughs> Whereas Mick had a pretty good night from what I remember. Yeah, and Tina Turner's amazing. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Earlier in the day, Patti LaBelle had uh, very good reviews uh, for her set, which included a cover of Bob's Forever Young. What's interesting about Bob's appearance at Live 8 is that it was originally supposed to be him singing Blown in the Wind with Peter, Paul, and Mary. And apparently... Because that was the whole thing about Live yeah. reunions. Led Zeppelin got back together, and a couple of big-name bands got back together for okay. this. So this idea was going to bring Peter, Paul, Mary, and Bob, you know, sort of the big 60s acts together to close out the show. Very last minute, Bob backed out. And apparently that cut Mary deep. So there's that. I mean, Peter, Paul, and Mary's definitely, they're a genre band. You know, and I just, Dylan's not about that. Yeah, no, I don't think so. And Bob didn't seem to be all about Live Aid itself either. So, unprompted, in the middle of his set, Bob says to the crowd, quote, I hope that some of the money, maybe they can take a little bit of it maybe, one or two million maybe, and use it, say, to pay the mortgages of some of the farms, and the farmers here owe to the banks. Yeah. That did not go over well with Bob Geldof, who organized the whole thing. In his book, he said, quote, He displayed a complete lack of understanding of the issues raised by Live Aid. It did instigate Farm Aid, which was a good thing in itself. But it was a crass, stupid, and nationalistic thing to say. So, Bob feud. Bob versus Bob. Who you got? Bobby D. Yeah! <laughs> He's not wrong. And, and that's why Farm Aid now exists. Right. And also, I mean, $2 million is nothing to, in, in 1984 dollars? 1985, yeah. $1985 is nothing to just... Nothing to cast aside? I don't think so. I mean, when you, when you think you about think... mortgages that were probably, you know, $10,000 $10, for the entire farm. Okay. And, you know, they're barely able to stay afloat. I mean, that could have done a lot of good. He's not wrong. Sure. Yeah, I think that would be my question about his suggestion is, like, how far would that go? Do the math. I don't know. I don't know. You, probably, you could probably save a <laughs> couple thousand people's farms. Right. And, you know, at the end of the day, you can say nationalistic. I mean, maybe. Dylan, coming from where he came from, you know, in rural Minnesota, I think is more in touch, probably than most of these performers, 
Um, maybe not all. I mean, certainly I'm sure there's some that are... I think that's a great point. Yeah, yeah I think that's where he's, he's speaking from his roots there. I think the criticism would be the money for Live Aid was being raised to keep people from starving to death, not losing their farms. I think that might be the only criticism that I would accept. Now, what I would push back on Bob Geldof about is that, first of all, Live Aid, even though it was all for Africa, it featured no artists from Africa <laughs> or music from Africa. And a significant amount of the money that was raised, <laughs> you know where this is going, a significant amount of the money that was raised by Live Aid did not actually go to help yeah. anyone starving. It got intercepted by warlords in Africa yeah. and was used to buy arms from the Soviet Union. You know what it makes me think of? That, that old um, SNL sketch with Phil Hartman as Clinton in the McDonald's. We're trying to get the food to the people who need it. Well, it's intercepted by warlords. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Do you favor the uh, decision to send military forces to Somalia? Hmm. That's a good question. Yes, I do. Let me tell you why. See, right now, we're sending food to Somalia. But it's not getting to the people who need it because it's being intercepted by warlords. <laughs> and it's not just us. It's other countries, too. Like, your McNugget is released from Great Britain to Somalia, intercepted by warlords. Like, he's literally talking about the Live Aid money. Yeah. I, I was thinking more, just probably reminded Bob of his years as an evangelical Christian. Oh. <laughs> you know, raising money for a good cause, none of it really makes its way right. down the line. Yeah, it's a, a very interesting little controversy to come out of that. And then the third big charity... Farming, which Willie Nelson founded yeah. as a direct response from Bob's comments. And Farmaid still goes on today. So that's an incredible legacy. Bob showed up at Farmaid's one and two. I give him credit, at least he put his money where his mouth yep. is. And so there you have it. All three of some of the biggest charity events of the 80s, Bob is front and center at each one. And sort of middling results. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, also, among all this charity he was doing in 1985, he put out an album in June of that year called Empire Burlesque. I know a lot of people don't care about this, but I have to mention that this was uh, about the time he also started wearing that damn earring <laughs> <laughs> that shows up in all the concert footage and videos of him in the 80s. <laughs> it's insane. And is it made of marble? They reference a marble earring in, in the Woolberries later on. Oh, I bet it is. Way of marble earring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> I hope they were making fun of them. So the leadoff single for Empire Burlesque is "Tight Connection to My Heart." Has anybody seen my love? Way too long of a title. It didn't really chart. But I can't figure out whether I'm too good for you or are you too good for me. Has anybody seen my I like it. So I've listened to it a couple of times, but it's also very, I think, commercial. At least it was attempting to be very commercial and accessible. It's, I guess, middle-age rock, which a lot of people will tell you is the lamest music ever made. Honestly, I, I don't mind middle-age rock. I just don't like it from Bob Dylan. This is horrible. Uh, 
This is, I think, the worst album he made in the '80s, and I know other people will we'll, we'll talk about the other ones that yeah. get that title. Okay. I think this is the worst thing he produced. This is the low point. I think so. Yeah. It's just so hollow. Did you watch any of the music videos for it? Yeah. For what's the song that you like? Oh, the one I like. I like quite a bit. Okay. The what's the one? The is called "When the Night Comes Falling from the Sky." When the night comes falling from the That was originally recorded with some of the guys from the E Street Band. Yeah. I don't know how much of them ended up actually being on the track they put on the album, but I like that song specifically because it doesn't sound like a Dylan song at all. It sounds like Miami Vice. It, 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 there's drum machines, this sounds totally contemporary, and that side of me that loves 80s pop music and shit like that, I was just like, what is this doing here? I was pleasantly surprised, but I will say, that's probably the exact reason so many Dylan fans hate this album. To me, that's the only song on the album that has any redeeming qualities. Okay. And it would be a B-side on somebody else's oh. like, middle age. Like if Harrison put out that, yeah. that would be like one that made its way to the very back of the album. Yeah. It's just not great. I don't I don't hate it like I do the rest of Empire Burlesque. Yeah, this is a pretty empty album. There was it was really only the two yeah, those two that kind of popped out at me at all. The rest of it, very skippable in in my opinion. Alright, and then the last thing I'll mention here, although it's not very important, but just sort of a uh, fun little piece of trivia. Sarah Dillon was not the only person Bob was ever married to. He got married in 1986 to a woman named Carolyn Dennis and had some kids with her. And that was largely unknown for a very long time. And it's kind of funny to me just because that means Bob is one of those secret family guys. <laughs> but he didn't have another family simultaneously. <laughs> right. He's not like an airline pilot from like, he's right. you know, got the... Sarah was aware of the, yeah. you know, of that relationship, yes. <laughs> Which is very funny. All right, okay. Let's uh, move to our, our next of the, what, what are we going to call this? The Garbage Trilogy? Uh, <laughs> Knocked Out Loaded, released in July 1986. From I've read a lot of, like, Bob Dylan albums, ranked articles. You know, and a lot of people say, oh, self-portrait or the Christian stuff, or Under a Red Sky. But, like, there's been some revision, and there's been some reassessment of records like those, so those sort of spectacular failures. The one that seems to always land is just pretty much irredeemable, is knocked out loaded. The only thing that's considered worthwhile on it at all is the song Brownsville Girl, which is over 11 minutes long. It's co-written by Sam Shepard. This album did nothing for me. I didn't like it much at all. He covers a Chris Christopherson song called They Killed Him. I like that song. I like the original version of that song. I do not like Bob's cover at all. He puts a children's choir on it. I don't know what else to say. It's absolute trash. 
the entire album or just that song? Well, that song in particular, but I listened to this album the one time, and I just felt like, okay, well, I don't need to listen to that again. So I like to bring that Pyre Burlesque. Fair enough. I, I thought You Want to Ramble is a solid song. Okay. Yeah, um, the opener. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Browseville Girl, not terrible. Okay. But I think I'm a huge fan of Sam Shepard. Okay. The player, you know, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Big fan of Dylan, obviously. Um, they are certainly not greater than the sum of their parts. They, <laughs> that, that was a, there's a subtraction there instead of an addition. Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe someday. I didn't think it was terrible. I agree with you. They, they killed them. Should not have been made. No. It's horrible. <laughs> they should have killed that song. <laughs> and then I, I verified this while listening. Precious Memories is the, the name of the place that cremated my dog. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, I mean, oh, it, it, feel, it feels like with a song, you know. Yeah. Isn't that like, because they got those the little figurines. Oh, precious, like, right. It's, it's, that's the, a horrible song and a horrible song title. Yeah, 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 yeah. Not Precious Memories. They're Precious moments, precious like moments. Whatever. I don't know. Right. It's it's whatever. That's funny. They, I get what you're saying. It's terrible. Yeah. Did the song "Got My Mind Made Up" jump out at you at all? No, I don't think but, so. Uh, Is that the only interesting thing about that? It was uh, the lyrics on that are from Tom Petty. It was part no. of the trade. Petty gave him that song, and Bob sent him the lyrics for Petty's fairly big hit "Jammin' Me." It's a good song. I didn't realize that Dylan had anything to do with that. Yeah, the one that mentions Joe Piscopo. <laughs> what the hell did he ride with that? Uh, yeah, I was like, take back Vanessa Redgrave, take back Joe Piscopo, take back Eddie Murphy, give them all some place to go. Yeah, okay. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Petty said that Eddie Murphy got in his face about that song. And Petty was like, hey man, Bob wrote it, don't get mad at me. Hey, around that time period, Eddie Murphy was having some problems. Yes. <laughs> so he probably got in a lot of people's faces around that. Around this time, Petty and, and Bob were becoming friends. That's why it's, it's worth bringing this up. And they, they actually started touring together. Uh, the Heartbreakers served as Bob's backing band in 86, 87. And in Bob's book, Chronicles, he says, quote, Tom was at the top of his game, and I was at the bottom of mine. This is the point in his career where he said he was starting to develop a level of performance anxiety. He was depressed by how you know he was having trouble selling tickets on his own. He had to rely on the Heartbreakers, and then he'd be with the Heartbreakers, and those guys would want to play his old songs, and, and he would be like, that's a little out of my comfort zone. I, I just have these songs I like to play. Let's just keep it to these and at one point thought, this will be my last big payday. I'll wrap it up after this, and I'll start looking for other businesses to get into. Like, he was getting to the point where he was ready to walk away from the music industry as a whole. Thankfully, he did not. And I wonder if part of the reason that he did not was that in January 1988, he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So he was inducted in the same class alongside the Beatles, the Beach Boys, the Drifters, and the Supremes. What a class. To, That's I mean. a lineup. Very appropriately, Bruce Springsteen gave his induction speech. It's a good speech, I will say. And I think the quote I pulled from that that I think really said it all was he said, The way that Elvis freed your body, Bob, freed your mind. 
The way Elvis freed your body, Bob freed your mind. That is, man, Springsteen. That is. <laughs> Just n- nails it. Hits it on the head. That's why he's the boss. That's why he's the boss. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, which is very relevant to what we're talking about today, he also said, quote, That to this day, where great rock music is being made, there is the shadow of Bob Dylan over and over and over again. And Bob's own modern work has gone unjustly underappreciated for having to stand in that shadow. Bob's own modern work has gone unjustly underappreciated. And he name checks Sweetheart Like You and Every Grain of Sand. Every Grain of Sand, I can see Springsteen. Well, Springsteen has that kind of gospel. I mean, you've seen him a number of times, too. Yeah. He's got that. There's there's almost a revivalist sort of feel to his performance, the entire thing. So I can see him appreciating Dylan's uh, Christian music maybe more than some other artists. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I think that's a good point. And to be fair, Every Grain of Sand is phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. So very cool to see Bruce acknowledge the, some of the stuff that Bob was doing in the meantime instead of just heaping praise on him for stuff he did 20 years ago. I mean, Bruce was smart enough to realize that you know, Bob has heard enough praise about what he did in the 60s, you know, giving him some some credit for the stuff he was doing more currently, uh, I think must have meant uh, quite a bit to him. I will say this induction ceremony is pretty infamous. It's a bit of a shit show, <laughs> thanks to Mike Love of the Beach Boys. And anyone who knows anything about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame knows this story. But when it was Mike Love's turn to get on the mic... He just started calling out everybody in the hall and out of the hall. He called out Paul McCartney and Diana Ross for not attending. He challenged Springsteen and Billy Joel to get up on stage with him and the Beach Boys and play something. He called Mick Jagger chicken shit uh, for not jamming with the Beach Boys, (laughs) which is honestly very funny. And after that tirade... Uh, when Bob finally got up to give his remarks, at one point he says, And uh, I want to thank Mike Love for not mentioning me. <laughs> <laughs> there's, that, there's that sense of humor that yeah. always gets lost with Dylan. The guy's got a wry sense of humor that people always kind of gloss over. Yeah. It's funny. Yeah, right, right alongside all the appropriate people that he would thank. He just yeah. had to throw that little dig in at the it's end. great. Elton John made a very similar joke that night as well. But... One interesting thing about Love's comments is that Mike seemed to imply that other groups of his era weren't, I don't know, tough enough or popular enough to do as many dates a year as the Beach Boys did. You know, he bragged about how many how many dates that the Beach Boys did. So another part of Bob's quote is that he says, I play a lot of dates every year, too. And uh, peace, love, and harmony is greatly important indeed but so is forgiveness and we got to have that too which i think was in his own way of saying like look man i play a lot too don't get on other people for not doing it how you do no, it no. and i also think i mean look mike mike loves always butt sore because let's let's be clear oh, yeah. brian wilson is the beach boys yes mike love is one of rock and roll's great villains yeah i mean so it, there's always going to be that you know he's always trying to prove something yeah and, yeah Definitely uh, one of the most interesting nights the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame's ever had. So one thing i got to mention quickly here before we move on to the last couple records is Bob made a movie in 1987. (laughs) 
or at least it was released in the UK in 1987. It's called Hearts of Fire. Bob plays a cynical, burnt-out rock star, so I think you can guess why he took the part. <laughs> but here's the thing. We got a lot to talk about yet, and neither of us have watched that movie yet. So we're going to table that for our part four, Bob Dylan in the 1990s, because this movie had a very short theatrical run in the UK in 1987. It wasn't until 1990 that it was released straight to video in the United States. So we'll address this movie um, based on its video release. I just have to say, Dylan started making some good albums in the 90s, but I am looking more forward to watching this movie than listening to any of those albums. <laughs> I think you're correct. I think we're going to have a movie night here and watch it together. <laughs> now, one of today's most acclaimed young actors, Rupert Everett. One of tomorrow's hottest singers, Fiona. And in the role that takes you beyond the legend, Bob Dylan. Hearts of Fire. All right, stay tuned for that in part four, Bob Dylan in the 1990s. Okay, let's get back to Dylan's studio releases. This is the third of what I'm calling the Garbage Trilogy. <laughs> Down in the Groove was released in May 1988. In 2007, Rolling Stone magazine called this Bob Dylan's worst album. And ten years later, they wrote an article that noted that this was around when his, quote, career hit rock bottom. So Rolling Stone, Bob's biggest bootlicker, points to this album as being something even they will criticize. I don't know if I would vote it as the absolute worst. I think I enjoyed a few things here more than Knocked Out Loaded, but it's down there. Most of the songs were from previous recording sessions, so you have sort of a, you know, this is just off the cutting room floor yeah. kind of vibe. Um, I think the the only two worth mentioning, at least for me, is that I think Ugliest Girl in the World is a little funny, and then the track Silvio is pretty good. Yeah. But beyond that, I thought this album was a total bore. So I kind of liked it. Uh, Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of covers, you know, and Dylan, right. Dylan doing covers, I mean, that's... That's been the last, up until recently, that's been the last decade of Dylan, really, in the 2010s, 20 whatever we're calling them. Yeah. Let's Stick Together. It's a straightforward cover. Yeah. I liked it. Uh, people might know the, like, the Can't Heat, ver- the, the Can't Heat? Yeah, I think that's right. Did the Let's Work Together, right? Um, Sally Sue Brown, it's marginal, but it's still not horrible. Uh, Had a Dream's Not Bad. Ugliest Girl in the World is kind of a fun song. Yeah, it's a little To your funny. point. And then I, I thought Shannon Doe is not a bad cover. But okay. I get it as a cover. He's, you know, it's not, this album, are there, how many original songs are even on this album? It's, it's, it's not. Probably less it's, than it's, half. It's, it's, yeah, it's less than half. It's, it's a handful. It's certainly not his worst. I don't know, I don't think it's as bad nearly as people say it is. So you think it's a step up at least from Empire Burlesque? Oh yeah. yeah. I, I, I really don't like Empire Burlesque. I would say Empire Burlesque is his worst album. Okay. Let me think of some of the albums we weren't big on. I remember we we weren't real big on John Wesley Harding. Yeah, no, okay, John, not John Wesley Harding's better. Okay, yeah. Uh how about uh Street Legal? I think I might like this better than Street Legal. Okay, there you go. So he was still playing a couple of concerts with Petty when he was putting this record together, 
but he was also teaming up with, of all bands, The Grateful Dead, who were having a very big revival in the late 80s. Their one big hit single, Touch of Grey, and they were doing stadium shows. And I think Bob saw an opportunity to you know, to make some money and to keep playing stadium shows by teaming up with them in the same way he teamed up with the Heartbreakers. Didn't go as smoothly. He said that his performance anxiety was real high at this point, and he was also drinking really heavy. And in Chronicle, he mentions a story where he sort of found his footing by going out to like a jazz club one night and seeing a jazz singer play some old song he liked, and he was just like, I know how to do this and then went back and played some more successful shows with Grateful Dead that may or may not be some myth building but uh, you know I think there's something there I think his time with the dead helped him find his feet a little bit and helped him to decide that he did not actually want to retire from so their partnership did lead to a live album of which I am wearing a (laughs) t-shirt Dylan and the Dead gets my vote for my favorite cover of a Bob Dylan album. Yeah, I think maybe. I, I, I might agree with that. Great art album artwork. Anytime you put a train on the cover, I think that's a thumbs up for me at least. But anyway. Better be careful. The guy riding that train is high on cocaine. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, well. Very good. <laughs> But the album itself is pretty shitty. <laughs> Probably the least essential part of Bob's discography. Yeah. Dylan and the Dead. I guess Bob asked to join the Grateful Dead full time. And uh, Jerry Garcia was stunned and like said, well, I guess we have to vote on it. And he took the proposition back to the rest of the band. They voted no. <laughs> I mean, that speaks volumes. Now, is that real? Is that, or is that apocryphal? Where is that from? I mean, it's, it's interesting to hear. I mean, it's, it's from one of the Dylan biographies, and it has quotes from Jerry. Because their accounts, of course, like everybody else who's ever been around Bob, is that he was difficult. You know, he was drinking pretty heavy. He didn't want to do the songs they wanted to do. Oh, no. I'm not saying that they would vote no. I think <laughs> they would definitely vote no. Just that he asked at all. That's interesting to me. Maybe he kind of thought, like, I'll get back some of, like, the magic I had with uh, the band. It's kind of, oh, similar musical chops. I mean, and they'd be like, a backing, but the problem is they'd be a backing band. Right. right. I think that's that's what he's not getting, maybe. Is, right. Because he's probably really loaded. I mean, I think he was really drinking a lot at this time. He was, he was drinking yeah. pretty heavy. The, the band analogy is a good one. Thankfully, he did not join the Grateful Dead because that left him available to join a different group. The Traveling Wilburys was made up of George Harrison, Tom Petty, Jeff Lynne, Roy Orbison, and Bob. The story goes, Harrison needed a song to be a B-side for a single he was putting out. He got these guys together. They recorded Handle With Care. Everybody's got somebody to lean on Put your body next to mine And dream on Took it to Warner Brothers and Warner Brothers was like, yeah, that's not a B-side, that's that's all, that's yeah. not just a, even just a single, that's an album. You all need to get back there and produce a proper album, of which they did, thankfully. Handle With Care is one of the best songs of the 80s. Of all time. It's, in my, it's probably my top 20 but I love that song. Yeah. Killer song. And the album it comes from is also very good. 
The big hits from the album are Handle With Care and End Of The Line. Bob does not sing lead on either of those, but he seems to sing lead on almost <laughs> every other else. song. <laughs> <laughs> he sings lead on Dirty World, Congratulations, Margarita, Tweeter and the Monkey Man, and a song called Like a Ship on the Reissue. That's like half the record. Yeah. How do you like the Traveling Wilburys album stacked up, say, to every album we've talked about today so far? So it's the best thing he did in the 80s. By far. Far and away. There's nothing even close. Yeah. Every single song on this album, I love. In particular, for me, is Tweeter and the Monkey Man. It's a great one. That's a fun song. I gotta say, it was a unique feeling to listen to Empire Burlesque, Knocked Out Loaded, Down in the Grove, and then this one. As I'm listening to these other three albums, I'm like, well, you know, maybe I'll find a diamond in the rough. Maybe this one's okay. This one sounds like stuff I kind of like. This is a little familiar. This is a cover I recognize. I'm just reaching for these, like, okay, passable moments. And then you get to Traveling Wilburys Volume 1, and it's just like, holy shit, albums are allowed to be this good? (laughs) Maybe it's like no one was telling Dylan no, really, in the 80s, and he wasn't collaborating. Maybe that's why he wanted to join the dead. Because yeah. he wasn't collaborating with anybody who were, like, peers. Yeah. And then all of a sudden he hits the Wilburys, and it's like, first of all, the best Beatle. Yeah. Roy, Roy freaking Orbison, Roy right? Orbison. Jeff Lynn, yep. you know, legend, and then Tom Petty. So he's among peers. Well, and it's also like, you know, when you're with people that you also respect. Yes. Brings out your best, you know? Yep. And I think they all brought each other's best out. That's a really solid album. And Bob's songs here are very strong. Maybe he's just having fun again. That's a good point, that's too. A, that's a big part of just. <laughs> he could have been in a good mood. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, it wasn't just, you know, the good quality of stuff here it was also, unlike all his previous records, this was very successful. So he does get a genuine pop smash right at the end of the 80s. He's in the music videos, and uh, he looks cool in them. This isn't embarrassing like maybe Live Aid was or you know, We Are the World, where it's just like, oof, a little cringy. No, this is a very cool project all the way through, and I think of it as a desperately needed jumpstart to his career, which I think, as we've covered, was on life support at this point. Couldn't sell tickets without the Heartbreakers or the Grateful Dead, couldn't sell records, period, and was getting the high-profile celebrity charity gigs based on work he did 20 years before. So here he is with a genuine creative hit and also a commercial hit. All right. Let's get to the last big project of the 80s. This was released in September 1989. And my question to you is, do you think he got the title for his last album of the 80s, Oh Mercy, because he had been hanging around Roy Orbison? Orbison. Yeah. Yeah, my thought thought too. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that's like some some strong Uncle Jesse vibes with that shit. (laughs) (laughs) So, Oh Mercy is probably what a lot of Bob Dylan fans also cried out when they heard it, in the sense that if they had been buying Bob records all through the 80s, they were like, oh, Mercy. Mercy. (laughs) It's actually good. Oh Mercy is largely considered to be a comeback of sorts. It seems to be the one that writes the ship of the 80s. Yeah. It was critically acclaimed. And if if you like Oh Mercy, this is one of the records he dives very deeply into in Chronicles. And he tells you each excruciating step. So uh, fans of this record should definitely get Bob's book. 
He says, of all people, it was Bono who convinced him to record this album. And Bono set him up with producer Daniel Lenoir. And in Chronicles, Bob says that Oh Mercy, quote, would get good reviews, but reviews don't sell records. And yes, unfortunately, like his previous records in this decade, Oh Mercy did not really sell. It sold better than his last couple, right. but it wasn't uh, you know, a real big hit. I have a quote from producer Daniel Lenoir. I want your reaction to this. He said that this is a record you listen to at night because it was, quote, designed at night. Quote, Bob had a rule. We only recorded at night. I think he's right about that. The body is ready to accommodate a certain tempo at nighttime. I think it's something to do with the pushing and pulling of the moon. At nighttime, we're ready to be more mysterious and dark. Oh, Mercy is about that. Oh, Mercy was two guys on a back porch. That kind of vibe. As you and I have been two guys on a back porch at night <laughs> many times in the past. <laughs> yeah. What do you think? Is this a record that w- would have felt appropriate to be playing quietly as we sat outside with beers shooting the breeze? Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Yeah, even, even uh, you know, my initial thought would be that maybe, like, Political World wouldn't necessarily fall into that. Okay. Even thinking about that song... There's such a sense of like dismay in that. That's like yeah. I think it's just like a guy, which I will say, Political World almost I think, kind of like the better. We were talking about what a better version of Union Sundown would sound like. Oh. Political World, I think that the, that's where it's real art, whereas Union Sundown is not. Fair enough. I see what I, that, that makes sense to me. lyrically. Speaking. Yeah, yeah, lyrically, absolutely. We live in a political world. Wisdom is thrown into jail. It rots in a cell, the sky that is hell, leaving no one to pick up the trail. The standout tracks from this record to me are Most of the Time and What Was It You Wanted. What were the ones that stood out to you? Except for Disease of Conceit. I liked every song of this album. Um, in terms of standouts for me, Everything is Broken, certainly. Local World's good. Man in the Long Black Coat, I liked a lot. Mm. And then, the Johnny Cash uh, kind of vibe. Yep, and then what what was it uh, you wanted? I would agree with you on that one as well. That's it's a great song. Everything is broken has a real good. That's a real good Bob Dylan title. It's a sort of title that like I actually don't want anyone to write a song but Bob Dylan. Yeah, because if a lesser artist writes a song called Everything is Broken, that's going to sound real complainy. Whereas Bob. I think has the authority to make a statement like that. It reminds me a lot of an, a decade later. Things have changed. It's got a very similar yeah. vibe to Things Have Changed, which is another song I love by him. Absolutely. Okay, now here, here's a hot take about this record. This is the only downside of the record for me. This record is the one that I noticed the coarse end of yeah. his vocals has arrived. All through 60s, 70s, and, and, and most of the 80s, I enjoyed his vocals. Yeah. And I had sort of forgotten about, like, why I had been apprehensive to really dive into his discography, because I was enjoying his singing through so much of this. And I'm not saying I don't enjoy the singing on Oh Mercy, but I went back and listened to a few tracks off of Down in the Groove, just to make sure. Yeah. But there is a distinct difference between his vocals just a year before on Down in the Groove and the coarse, harder-edge singing style he was doing. Yeah. On Oh Mercy. Now, I think that really works in a positive way for a song like Most of the Time, 
but I will say I'm sort of worried about how I'm going to like the rest of this music from here on out. I thought you would have said it certainly works for everything is broken because like like my voice, you know. <laughs> um, I have three distinct theories about what's happening with his voice. Okay, one okay. just the drinking and the smoking. Absolutely, smokes like a chimney, drinks heavily. The other one is his teeth. We've talked about it. Hey, look, look, I know that you, you always laugh when I say this, but, like, he's getting to a certain age, yeah. and people say he does not brush his, his damn teeth. Yeah. So maybe that's a problem. I don't okay. know. And the third is, and this is the one that, like, most recently occurred to me, is he, he's always been in the boxing. He's he, he big into, like, oh, right, 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 boxing. Right. Of boxing. course, Hurricane yeah. Carter, yeah. Did he start doing, like, did he, like, bust his face up, like, his nose up a lot? <laughs> I'm not joking. Like, oh, wow. we always want to make these things, like, as a stylistic, uh, a stylistic yeah. choice or he's giving, you know, whatever. Yeah. But, like, so frequently these things are really just mechanical. Yeah. I almost wonder if it's, like, his teeth or his nose or something, both from bad oral hygiene and also yeah. from getting punched in the face a lot. I don't know. Well, I don't know anything about boxing as a hobby, but I do know what you're talking about, the hygiene is both of the biographies, which are very well respected about him, uh, mention <laughs> about how gross he just was in the 80s. Yeah. You know, how he'd go to like celebrity parties with like dirt under his fingernails yeah. and smelling terrible. But women would still just be all over right. him. Like Elizabeth Taylor was all over him, even though he was like looking like a, a hobo. In my experience, those are the guys that the ladies go for. <laughs> the, real, the real crusty dudes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> when Jack Hughes from Wang Chung uh, was on and we were talking about Bob, he said he had listened recently to Dylan's Rolling Thunder Review live album, and he said that he didn't really like it because as a vocalist, he thought Bob was howling and shouting all of his lyrics and singing very hard and doing, he said basically all of the things that as a singer you're taught not to do. And he, he just happened to mention that he thinks that Bob's voice sound how it does because he blew it out at some point. Out, yeah. So maybe not the most <laughs> positive note to end on, but I don't think it damages the record. I think it's still a strong record. I enjoyed it. I just noticed it. And we'll see how we go into the 90s. It's a little overproduced. If there's one critique oh, okay. of it, it's a little overproduced. A little overproduced. Well, producer did come from Bono, so you can blame Bono for that. <laughs> Bono, whose favorite album, Shot of Love. Oh, is that right? It's his favorite album. That's the one that he, yeah. Oh, very cool. Okay. Wow. You, so you got Springsteen with you and Bono. Okay. You know your stuff. That's there you album. go. So the last uh, little thing I want to cover briefly before we get to our favorites is some of the standout cover versions of Bob's songs because although Bob wasn't on the charts really at all in the 80s, a couple of his songs were, and most of them were all in 1988. Rod Stewart released his song, Forever Young. Did you know that that's not actually a cover? No, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So the lyrics are almost identical, but I guess he wrote it separately, and then he looked at the two songs, and he called up Bob, and he said, hey, listen, I've basically rewritten Forever Young. I want to release it. How do we go from here? And they share ownership of the song. So it's effectively a cover, but it's not word for word. So I, I found that to be interesting, because I didn't know that either. I just sort of... Just... I, I think I was distracted by the Baby White Tigers in the music video. <laughs> <laughs> I just didn't... It's like, is this a Dylan song? <laughs> That was Baby White Tigers? Yeah. yeah. Oh, what a trip. Oh, wow. We were just talking about Bono. Obviously, Bono's a big fan of Bob. You two covered All Along the Watchtower on their Rattle and Hum album in 1988. 
Bob joins them on that album for another song called Love Rescue Me. And I know that you too love to cover Knocking on Heaven's Door in concert all through the 80s. And then Bruce Springsteen covered Bob's Chimes of Freedom for his Chimes of Freedom live EP in 1988. I have not listened to that, so I don't know if it's very good. So any, any thoughts on, on those cover versions or any cover versions you're aware of from the 80s that uh, you either like or dislike? It's going to be a no. Yeah, right. <laughs> Slim pickings. Okay, well, we've gone on long enough, so let's get to our favorites. If you need a minute, I can give it to you. We're going to talk about our top three albums from the 80s. Wilburys included, and Wilbury songs included in these. Yes. Okay. And then top five songs from the eighties. So I can do that. I'll go first. My three favorite albums from the eighties are Infidels, Oh Mercy, and of course Traveling Wilburys Volume One. I would go Wilburys One, Oh Mercy, and Shot of Love. Shot of Love. Okay. Yeah. So my top five favorite songs of Bob's from the eighties are. Union Sundown, Joker Man, When the Night Comes Falling from the Sky, off of Empire Burlesque, Tweeter and the Monkey Man, and Solid Rock, off of Saved. Okay. I do Evergreen of Sand, End of the Line, uh, Handle with Care, Everything is Broken, and What Was It You Wanted. If I forced you to pick songs that Bob sang lead on and took out Handle with Care and End of the Line, could you do five? Because that, fe- right. that, that feels a bit like a cheat. Dirty World okay. is a great song. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to replace the ones that are... Okay. <laughs> uh, and he did uh, and Tweeter and the Monkey Man. Okay. Does that satisfy you now on Absolutely. your podcast? Absolutely. So I, I was cheating. I was giving you just my favorite Wilbury songs <laughs> instead of right. my favorite Dylan songs for that. But there you go. Fair enough. Yeah, those are good ones. Okay, but we don't have any in common. So, well, tw- Oh, Tweeter and the Monkey Man. Uh, we do. Yeah, okay. Right. So there we go. I can't believe Evergreen of Sand doesn't do anything for you. It's oh, it does. It makes me think of Everybody Hurts. <laughs> no, I, I do like that song. It's a great song. I do like that song, and I, and I do like A Shot of Love. I, I would say probably more than Saved as a whole, because yeah. it is a little less tedious. But my favorite 80s Bob gospel song is going to be Solid Rock. Just because... It's great, too. It's yeah, a great song. Because it's rock and roll. Okay. Well, we're just about done here. Do you have any final thoughts on the decade as a whole? It was not the total slog that I thought it was going to be. But there were parts that were still a slog. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Strong agree. Strong agree. Not as bad as I think fans make it out to be or critics make it out to be. Definitely some true diamonds in the rough. So if, if you're a fan of his 60s and 70s work, you should not stop at 1980. Okay, so let's just look ahead here to our next episode for you and me, which is going to be Dylan Through the Decades Part 4, Bob Dylan in the 1990s. A couple of the major things we're going to talk about is the aforementioned Hearts of Fire. We got Traveling Wilburys uh, Volume 3, The Notorious Under a Red Sky, Bob Fest, the 30th anniversary, and of course his big critical comeback, 1997's Time Out of Mind. So stay tuned to that for uh, Dealing Through the Decades Part 4. So before we wrap up here, I have to cite my sources. Uh, once again, Chronicles Volume 1 by Bob Dylan. His chapter about Oh Mercy is fantastic. Very insightful there. And then Down the Highway, The Life of Bob Dylan by Howard Sunez. 
And along with that, Bob Dylan, Behind the Shades Revisited by Clinton Halen. Both very good Bob biographies. I'm going to recommend two brand new projects that tie directly into what we've been talking about today. Springtime in New York, the bootleg series, volume 16, 1980 to 1985, was released September 2021. I've listened to it a little bit. Uh, there's a couple of tracks there I like. An alternative mix of Joker Man, some interesting stuff there. So if you're liking the stuff that we've been talking about today, I would check that out. And then this is brand new. A Bob Dylan and Grateful Dead concert from July 19th, 1987 is now available on YouTube Music as Honky Tonk Lagoon. Some of the songs from that concert have also been shared on Dylan's official YouTube channel. So I don't know if there's like a physical CD release of that, but somebody found a clean recording of a Grateful Dead show with Dylan. I'm guessing that's a better listen than 1989's Dylan and the <laughs> Dead. <laughs> you and I are going to be at Dylan's Rough and Rowdy Ways tour kickoff at uh, the Riverside Theater in Milwaukee in just a week, and we'll record our reaction in the car afterwards, so make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel for that. And then the last thing I can announce is that there's another book out that's called Bob Dylan in London, Troubadour Tales, by Jackie Lees and Keith Miles. And I can say that Keith Miles is going to be joining me here on the show for an interview about Bob. Very that nice. book is about Bob's history with the city of London. He's got a new book about Bob's uh, history with the city of New York coming out late November. So he's going to come on the show and uh, talk about both of those projects. So a lot of Dylan content coming up. Dylan Broadway show right now, too. Oh, is that right? For, yeah, Girl from the North Country. It's all Dylan. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's not, is that it's out? got terrible reviews, but it's, <laughs> <laughs> well, but it's right. relevant. I mean, I thought I'd bring it up. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> okay. On that note, I'm going to play us out with Tweeter and the Monkey Man. Chris, thank you again for coming on. This was an absolute blast. Thank you, Joe. All right. Take it away. Tweeter and the Monkey Man were hard up for cash. They stayed up all night selling cocaine and hash. To an undercover cop who had a sister named Jan For reasons unexplained, she loved the monkey man Tweeter was a boy scout, for she went to Vietnam And found out the hard way, nobody gives a damn Hey, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the big four things you can do to support this show that don't cost a dime. Number one, listen to the show. If you're hearing this, that means you did that one already. Thank you. Your time is valuable, and there is an infinite amount of content out there. So you choosing to spend some time listening to this show means a great deal to me. Number two, if you like what we did here, please recommend the show to family, friends, or anyone you know looking for a podcast, particularly about music. Share our links in subreddits, Facebook groups, and recommendation threads. Whatever you can do is highly appreciated on my end. Number three, find us on social media. Follow us on Twitter at Play That Podcast. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash play that podcast. And subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash C slash play that rock and roll. Lots of great supplemental material, like photos and vlogs, on all three platforms. As Play That Rock and Roll is very much meant to be a content hub as well as a podcast. 
And finally, the big ask. Number four. Please give us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I know this part is a hassle, but it really does help the show a great deal because it gives me something I can point to when pitching the show to potential guests. The more social media followers and positive ratings the show has, the better chances I have for booking high-profile guests for interviews. So if you take a moment to give us even just a five-star rating, you are actively giving us a tool to do bigger and better things here on this show. But whatever the case, I appreciate any and all efforts you take to support us here at Play That Rock and Roll. Be sure to join us next time for more great stories and music from the world of classic rock. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.